Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Brian of Channel 4 News, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football. News just in. Frank Lampard is set to be sacked by Chelsea. Confirmation could come as soon as today. Now, of course, they're on a really bad run of form in the Premier League. They've lost five of the last eight. They're well off the pace. We're 18 months into the three-year contract that Frank Lampard was given. He's overachieved in his first season, but now reality is bitten. Chelsea, don't take prisoners. He's been sacked. Jordan, you surprised? If he's to be sacked, uh, no, I wouldn't be surprised. But two things. I I think he was he was thrown a horrible hospital pass at the start of the season. And this might sound weird, but by being given too many good players. I think some of those players that he was given at the start of the season, I don't believe he wanted. I think the Kai Havertz signing... And on the face of it is a brilliant one because I've watched him for a couple of years and I think he's a phenomenal talent. But it felt to me like Chelsea were getting him because they were fearful of somebody else getting him. Let's get him now before someone else does because this guy for the next decade is going to be the, the, you know, the, the, the hottest kid in Europe. I don't think Lampard needed or wanted him. And I think as a result, the pressure that was put on Frank Lampard was we're not expecting top four. We're expecting a title challenge. And I think a lot of people were talking about top Chelsea top four at the start of the season. For me, with that outlay of, of spending, you're not telling your manager, I'm expecting top four. You're telling your manager, if you don't win the title, you better come very, very close to it. And I think that was unfair. The second thing is, I'm, I mean, I support a London rival club. So all banter aside and yeah, Chelsea getting the guy sacked, ha, 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 ha. I love it. I actually don't want Lampard to be sacked because I think whilst they he's made some errors and some mistakes and where they are right now, I mean, they're five points off top four, let alone a title challenge. I've seen a couple of glimmers. I've seen some glimmers of a rays of light uh, from Lampard's management of him doing some good things at Chelsea. And I think that given a bit of time, I think Lampard deserves the opportunity to try and turn this around now. We know what happens at Chelsea. You don't get time. Roman has put his money where his mouth is and he's shown what he wants. But I actually won't 
take too much glee if indeed he, he is to be fired. I think he's a, he's, a, he's a young manager who's learning and I think it will be a little bit harsh to fire him. But yeah, it, we know what happens at Chelsea. They don't mess around. So it seems like within the next 48 hours, he, he could be gone. Yeah, well, the, the, certainly the sources seem to be very reliable. So I think we can probably take it as read that, that it will happen. Again, I suppose the question I'd pose to you, Seb, is whether it's fair. You know, I know football, modern football, is not about equity or fairness, but did Frank Lampard get enough of a chance to do what he needed to do? Really difficult question to answer because in one sense, yes, they gave him the licence to use the products of the academy to build a squad around uh, new components who, you know, in a, in a different era probably wouldn't have had the same chance. I mean, that was slightly a product of the transfer ban, but it was still a, a latitude that a lot of other managers wouldn't have received. I think it's really hard to look beyond the bottom line, which is Chelsea spent almost £250 million over the summer and Frank Lampard has taken them to mid-table and he's been knocked out of the League Cup by Spurs. Like, I know that's a very black and white way of looking at it, but it's just the reality. They're not going to even compete for the title this year. They're well off the pace. You know, and that's during a season where everybody is a little bit ropey. You know, I, I know Manchester United have been a lot better, but I wouldn't say that the title race is anything like it was in the last pre the previous two years. Also, I think this represents probably for Chelsea a choice between their investments and their head coach because no matter what else you'd say about Chelsea this season, Timo Werner and Kai Havertz have been a crushing disappointment so far. Werner in particular looks absolutely broken as a forward. I don't think that's a permanent state. He's not term in any sort of terminal decline, but it's something you need to fix. And as Jordan alluded to, these are two very, very, very good players who are underperforming significantly. And there are lots of reasons for that. Harvard's has had coronavirus, which is hugely debilitating. But at the end of the day, you've got to fix it. And Chelsea need to finish in the top four. If you make that kind of outlay, you need the Champions League revenue the season afterwards. And uh, so I understand that. And also the Athletics' Rafa Honigstein is reporting that Thomas Tuchel is reportedly set to replace Frank Lampard. And to me, that kind of confirms what I just said in that like, that's a, a German-speaking coach with experience of the Bundesliga who knows, who has come up against Werner and Harvitz in opposition before, who can communicate with them, who will probably have a few more kind of reference points that they share. So it does seem like that's at least been a factor in that. A, a couple very quick points, sorry, Mike, just to add to that. One is, I think it opens up, maybe this isn't the time to talk about it now, but there's a discussion I think to be had about managers taking invoke as their dream job too soon people say oh you know how could he turn down Chelsea when he was offered the job well in normal circumstances at normal clubs I would say that's a fair point to make but the, the rate at which Chelsea sack managers if Lampard had turned the job down a year and a half two years ago that job would come up again at some point very very soon so there's no worry for Lampard of thinking if I turn it down now I'm never going to get it again I think also I've I've, I've feared for a while that Chelsea pay lip service to, 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 to bring it through youth. They've got a great youth academy. I know Mason Mount and Reese James are very much permanent fixtures in their first 11 now, but I just don't buy that they really, really believe in bringing through young players. And the same could be applied to Lampard if they sack him. Did you really invest in Lampard in the sense of time? Because if you were going to, then a year and a half for me isn't long enough. And the, the, the final point I was going to make is... Um, 
where does Lampard go from here? Because he's been elevated hugely to, to Chelsea, I think overpromoted after doing an okay job at Derby. Where, you know, where does Lampard go next if he, if he is to be sacked? So I, I think there's some questions there about choices in terms of, you know, young managers deciding, moving too far too soon. Gerard's an example of, you're seeing the trajectory of him going to Liverpool. That seems to be teeing up with Klopp's next couple of years. Gerard doing well, that seems to be a, an, an obvious kind of synergy there. Whereas Lampard, I think, went too early when he didn't need to. Yeah, I, I happen to think that probably Stephen Gerrard probably needs one big job after Rangers before going into to Liverpool. But on that broader point, Seb, Chelsea have been put off Tuchel in the past because of his, you know, he's got quite a tempestuous character. He's had run-ins with previous employers. Does that matter when essentially what you're going to be looking at here is probably 18 months? I think it always matters. I think uh, Tuchel... Uh, his not his politics makes it sound like something else, but the kind of the um, he's not a reticent character, and that was a problem at Borussia Dortmund where he fell out with a hierarchy above him. It was a problem at PSG with the interview, which kind of led to his uh, his demise there. So it's tricky. It's also I I, I always assumed that um, you know one of the uh, one of the great appeals of Lampard was that he was someone that you could install as an employee, essentially, someone who wasn't going to agitate. He wasn't going to try and change the way things operated, like from a club procedure perspective. 18 months is a really long time, Mike. And 18 months is going to come with, what, three transfer windows in which Tuchel is going to want a specific type of player. And this also all comes with a caveat. It's an if he's appointed at the moment. That's just a report as of now on a Monday morning. But it's always relevant. A manager's personality is always relevant to his job performance. So um, it's an unlikely combination. His personality, like the way he's conducted himself in the past with how Chelsea like to do things and how they like to departmentalise squad building, recruitment, sales, that kind of stuff. It's uh, be interesting to see how that worked out. It's also worth mentioning, sorry, Mike, because this is the Football Writers Podcast and Lampard has been a very popular figure within the media. But I know for a fact that the press conference he gave last week didn't go down very well in, in media circles. And I wonder if that's just a symptom of a young manager feeling the strain, the pressure that, that he's under, his, his, his attack. And I think it was a polite attack on, on a particular journalist. Whether you think that he was right to defend himself or not is a separate thing, but it didn't go down very well in the media. When you start seeing those, those inverted commas attacks on the press, you know it's going one way. I will just add there, like, I disagree with Jordan a little bit, and I don't think it was polite. I think he accused the journalist of being an attention seeker, of posturing on social media for attention. I thought it was, I thought it was the moment that he showed he didn't really have the temperament for that kind of job. I'm afraid maybe it's an experience thing, maybe a pressure thing. Frank Lampard's a human being, but I thought it was, uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't terribly impressed by that. I, I must admit, it, I, I just thought it was you know, just another, you know, another football day where I think a manager has got the right to actually defend himself and you know I've had personal experience with Frank you know I remember one we had one stand-up row for about 45 minutes on a Sunday morning and it ended up with That's a long row oh That's it is row, but we ended up actually agreeing with one another which was bizarre but it was it was one of those ones where he had a point to to make and he you know, called and made the point which I actually respected far more than someone sort of murmuring in the background I I have no problem with 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 managers and this specific instance of of Frank Lantar you know defending himself I suppose what it does do Jordan is 
it does show the pressure on a human being as a football manager. And you, you mentioned right at the start about dream jobs. Now, Steve Bruce at Newcastle would would basically say, well, that's my dream job. You know, that's I, I used to bunk into St. James's Park when I was a kid. His Newcastle team have scored one goal in eight games. They've lost six out of their last eight league matches. You've got the fan base that's so affected, disaffected that protests are being staged outside an empty stadium. This is going only one way, isn't it? Yes, it does. It does. It's, it's not a good run, as you mentioned there, at all for Newcastle. They're being dragged week by week into a relegation scrap after, a, you know, I thought a quite, quite good start. I was quite surprised by their start to the season this year. And I've started to believe that actually Newcastle weren't going to be involved in a relegation scrap this season, but they're, they're sleepwalking into that at the moment. I was looking through their squad um, over the weekend, Mike, and I felt for some years that the Newcastle team is very much a championship team that has been kind of punctured, if you like, um, over the years with the occasional quality player. Joe Linton, Atsu, Dumet, Mankio, Clark, Fernandez, Lascelles, Gell, Hayden, Yedlin, Carroll all not good enough for the Premier League. I think Almiron is one of the worst signings the Premier League has ever made. He's absolutely shocking. And John Joe Shelby, I've had so many arguments with friends of mine over the years about him. I've never rated John Joe Shelby. He has that one 50-yard Hollywood diagonal pass that comes off one in seven times. Every now and again, once a year scores a screamer. I think now he's regressing even further back than where I thought he was to start off with. It's a really, really poor squad. Wilson, Dubravka and Shah, I think, are good Premier League players. And St. Maximin, I like. But I'm not sure if you're a team at the bottom end of the table, you want a player like him who's unpredictable. You can get away with it at the top end of the table. But when you're down the bottom, someone who's unpredictable like him, I'm just not sure works, works for that particular team. So... It's, it's very quickly turned from Steve Bruce's dream job to his nightmare job. And I can only see them getting dragged into a, a proper scrap this season. I think they'll go. I think with Steve Bruce as well, I'm at the mindset now, Michael, I think to myself, he might as well just go for it. He's going to get sacked at some point anyway. So he might as well just say, you know what? Let's play some expansive football. If we lose, we lose. Let's just give it a go. Because the Newcastle fan base, from what I hear, that's all they really want. Give it a go, entertain us. And if we lose, we can accept that. Yeah, there were more protests on, on Saturday night, weren't there, Seb? And, you know, you could look at this, that Steve Bruce is really fortunate that, that there are no fans in the ground at the moment because it would be poisonous. You know, to be fair, the club has suffered from COVID. That is an extenuating factor. You know, Alan Saint-Maximin is just back after eight weeks because of that. But surely... All this taken in the round, it's not enough to hope that the shortcomings of other clubs will help them survive, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, it, it, especially so, Mike, if you look at some of those other clubs, I think of Fulham particularly because, you know, they're dramatically improved from what they were at the beginning of the season. You'd expect on the basis of history that at some point West Brom will get a jolt as a result of the Allardyce signing. Whether we enjoy watching it or not, they'll probably be more effective than they have been. I think what concerns me about Newcastle is not the idea of Steve Bruce, not the partnership between the players and the manager. Um, there's rumours that Graham Jones is going to come in and uh, do some coaching to, to kind of to help Steve Bruce. I think what troubles me is that you can imagine that group of players and that coaching staff staying together for 10 years 
and the football remaining exactly the same. There's no ideas, Mike. There's no sense that... And I think this is actually what, what irritates fans, what provokes fans, is that nothing changes game to game. It's the same game plan, it's the same strategy. And if you're a supporter, you can put up with losing and you can put up with imperfections and flaws in a performance as long as you can see where you're going as a result of them, what they're in aid of, what that kind of what that failure is instructing. In Newcastle, it is just a a joyless slog through the fixture list. And that would be very, very difficult to take. I can't, like, uh, I've got a lot of sympathy for Newcastle fans because actually anytime, anytime they complain about a situation like this, somebody turns around and says, well, what do you want? You want to win the Champions League? This kind of weird false equivalency that, that's deployed against them. And it's just, it's, it, there's no justification to it. And you're quite right. This situation is really only heading in one direction. Sorry, Mike, it's just brief, briefly, it's also a bit of a myth as well that Newcastle don't spend money. They do spend money. They just spend it very badly on very bad players. That needs to be looked at too. And I just think from a Newcastle fan point of view, they're just very much in like season seven of a really bad box set of here we go again. It's just more <laughs> horrid seasons of you know what's coming. You're not going to get good football. You're not going to do anything special in the cups. And, and I do have a little bit of sympathy for the fan base in that sense. It's also where, where seasons one to six have also been pretty bad as well, <laughs> yeah, up, to, up to yeah, season yeah. seven. Yeah. You really shouldn't be persevering <laughs> no. with the box set after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, put it in the skip. What about, you know, on Tuesday night, they've got Leeds at St. James's Park. Let's look at Leeds if we could, Jordan. It is a club with an exaggerated view of its importance based on its history, probably. You look at them at the moment, would it be f for Bielsa and this season just the, just enough for them to just keep their heads above water in the Premier League? I love how you phrased that, an exaggerated view of its own history. It's it's um it, it's so, so accurate. Oh, I'm so bored of this Leeds loving. It's just like really sending me insane. I, I think they'll stay up. I think they've got enough in the bank already points-wise to stay up. I think they'll lose a lot more games, but I think they'll win a few more games as well. So I don't, there's, any, there's no issue for me of whether Leeds will stay up or not. I think... I mean, I've been very critical over the last couple of months about this fawning over whatever Leeds do, win, lose or draw, it's fantastic. We all know how how interesting and fascinating Bielsa is as a character, but for me, it's getting a little bit boring. But the Leeds fans tell me on radio and via Twitter that, look, you know, we're not complaining, we like it, so why are you, why are you being miserable? Fair enough, if you like all that, then that's that's fine. It's your club, it's your, it's you guys have to watch it, no problem at all. I do think they have enough to stay up. I do think that they will, though, start to lose more games as the season goes on. The Leeds fans hate it, but like it or not, there will be a, a dip due to fatigue towards the back end of the season. They hate when you bring that up, but it's a fact. Bielsa teams flag towards the back end of all of his team seasons. So I think they'll be okay in terms of staying up this year. I wonder if it's enough for them next year as well. And also, I think he's got... This is his one-year contract. I think this is the last year of his contract, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken there. So whether he stays for next year as well is, is, a, is a big question too. But I think they'll be okay. But yeah, please, no more fawning over Leeds United. It's boring. Mm. In hindsight, and I know this is going to be a delicate question to answer, but in hindsight, Seb, how damaging was the, the Karen Carney episode? I don't know. I, 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 think it, I think for a lot of neutrals, it probably reminded them why Leeds United have never been anybody's second favourite team historically. I'm reticent to 
to draw a, a straight line to what's happening on the pitch because in my mind the Karen Carney episode was a really serious misjudgment by a social media executive and then by the owner of the club I think that was a incredibly stupid thing to have done but at the same time um, I wonder whether you know the uh, fatigue issue aside and yes look Bielsa's sides have suffered from this issue and you can trace that back to Newell's to Athletic Bilbao to Marseille as well it's a trend you can't deny it I wonder whether the um, <clears throat> one of the more pertinent points is probably what they did over the summer. I look at some of the transfer activity and I think it's quite underwhelming. Rafinha I like. I think he's been uh, he's played quite well. Robin Cock I like as well, but he he hasn't played well. It hasn't worked out that transfer at the moment. Rodrigo, you know, not a great signing moment. And partly that's because Patrick Bamford's been really good, really decent and far better than a lot of people expected. But I, I wonder whether the issue with Leeds hasn't been the inability to support Bielsa's work in the right way because, well, which which Premier League site isn't suffering from fatigue at the moment? So you, you, you kind of, it's as relevant as the trend is with Bielsa, it's kind of not really relevant in this weird, weird season. It's a very difficult point to make. So I, I wonder whether it's not just also, Mike, let's, let's be honest, some of those players that came up, they're not quite as good as they were presented as being. They have done brilliantly well to get Leeds back into the Premier League. But then I think this is the whole point, is that their promotion was a product of Bielsa's work and the improvement of some of these players and the improvement beyond what was considered previously to be their potential. And now a couple of them in the Premier League aren't quite as dominant as they were in the Football League. It's different. And so, you know, when that's the case, you need to rely on your recruitment. And I don't think Leeds' recruitment has been particularly good this season. Yeah, well, I woke up this morning to actually see Burnley involved in transfer speculation, which is a first for me. <laughs> you know, Joe Warren. It, it was all a dream, Mike. Yeah. It was all a dream. Um, you know, they're at home to uh, Villa on Wednesday, so there's a direct comparison to Newcastle that you can make. But in many ways, aren't Burnley the complete opposite of a Newcastle? Yes, yeah. Or, you know, you, you know what you're going to get. They're very, very clear in what their objectives are for the season they have a style of play which some may dislike but they are comfortable with that the fan base seem to buy into what the management and the ownership of the club are trying to do as well so yeah it's not really for me but there is a very clear objective of what Burnley are all about Sean Dyche it's been mentioned over the last couple of years you know the talk of maybe him missing the boat or maybe getting another job a more glamorous a job a bigger club job I think it's an interesting one because I I would like to see Sean Dyche get a job at a bigger football club to see actually if he could mould another team into a different style of of playing football. I wonder if and there's no other no other industry I can think of where you can do a solid job at the you know the top level of that industry with a small small company and not be poached by a bigger company. Football seems to be the only kind of industry where you can do a decent job at somewhere like Burnley and not be considered, maybe it's a snobbery or style thing. But um, yeah, I, I like the fact that Burnley are very, very clear in what they're, what they're about and what they're doing. It is a big game for them. I don't think they'll get dragged into relegation zone. I think they'll be okay. But I think there are questions for Sean Dyche to ask himself about what he's still doing at Burnley and what, what's next. You know, what, what's the next chapter now for Sean Dyche in his Burnley Burnley book? Yeah. You know, I suppose the question is, Seb, is he fated to be typecast as a sort of a dour, functional coach? But you've also got new ownership. They're promising you know, uh, AI recruitment. 
that will require a balancing act if if Sean Dyche is going to stay there. I actually think he can evolve and develop. And also, when you look at it, I, I thought it was probably overlooked at the weekend, a really good win at Fulham. Are they going to have a, you know, is that the, the start of a potential cup run, do you think, also? I don't know about the cup run because I, I, I still put Burnley in that category of teams who would probably like a cup run but could potentially be damaged by one. It's that sort of old, it's that old philosophy about what you should do with, with the cup competitions if you're destined to finish in the lower half of the, uh, in, the in the bottom half of the Premier League. With Deitch, I, what really interests me about the takeover, Mike, is that part of the part of the mentality with that is to supposedly market Burnley as the UK's favourite underdog, the club that punches above their weight. And it's a, it's a sort of strange contradiction, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you think, right, well, is, is Deitch going to be given greater resources to do his job? Or are they, because that's going to erode at the idea of an underdog, isn't it? So I don't know. And, and also to answer your question, I wonder whether, like, what effect... What effect will those resources and that kind of marketing approach, that that commercial approach, what will that have? What will that actually equip Dutch with? Will it be the opportunity to prove that he is, uh, you know, something other than what he's been at the moment? Which, by the way, <clears throat> I don't think there's any need for him to do that. I think he's done a fabulous job. I think actually, if you look back at yes, the win over Fulham, but the win at Anfield, I think you see a lot that you could admire. Yeah, you you can you can pick holes and you can say, oh, they're a bit negative and. You know, the possession was under 40%. But actually, what you saw there was a defensive masterclass. If Jose Mourinho does that at Anfield, we celebrate it for weeks. There's a Netflix series about that game. <laughs> because it's Daesh, you're just saying, oh, yeah, but it's easy, isn't it? Because, you know, low block, congesting the central areas, push everything out to the out to the, to the wings and just deal with the crosses and then counter. Okay, but that game plan has been available to every other side who have visited Anfield over the last couple of years. It was it was actually excellent to watch, and I wonder whether I wonder whether Daichi has done a little bit of a disservice because his version of football is always presented as being the easy option, almost like a cheap version of the game, and it's just not true. So I, I my, my desire for him isn't to isn't to see him you know play some kind of Renus Michaels total football. I just would like to see him get the respect for the job he's done up to this point, I think. I must say, just briefly as well, I always find it a bit uncomfortable when people describe that sort of setup that Jose is known for and, and Daesh is known for as a masterclass. Because I don't think in the history, you know, we won't look back in 30, 40 years time and there'll be books written about how to organize 4-5-1 and stop a team from scoring. It's organized and I think it's a legitimate style of play to get a result. I have no issue with a team setting up in that way. Not at all. I'm not a snob in that sense. But is it a masterclass? Is that, is, was that a masterclass really, Seb? <laughs> I, I would say in terms of balance and transition, it probably is, Jordan, just because like with that sort of setup, yes, you, the, 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 the basic part of it is to sit deep. I, I agree. And, and like to congest the middle and to, to make it difficult to create chances in, in you know, good areas. But I, I, if you look back at that game, I thought Burnley counted really well. I thought they struck a balance quite nicely between that defensive stuff. And you're quite right. If it was just the defensive stuff, I'd agree with you completely. But I thought that they could have scored two or three in, uh, at Anfield. And so in, in, in that particular instance, yeah, I mean, I, Masterclass probably a bit strong. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm using it to, to have a go at Jason Mourinho, I guess. <laughs> I sense um, that, I sense that. <laughs> it's just like a reflex of me. I can't help myself. But... It was. Um, I thought it was better to watch than, than than people made out to be. Okay, it's not the story because it's Liverpool losing their record and it's Klopp, and I, I get that. But it was, 
you know, he would, they would deserve more credit than they, they received for it, I think. Yeah, one of my sort of lasting memories of that game was, was McNeil dancing around Alexander-Arnold. He was as though he wasn't there. He was just you know, man against boys or boy against boy that, on that one in particular. So, Seb, let's look again at, say, Brighton. They're at home to Fulham on Wednesday in arguably the biggest game of the midweek programme. Are they, in, in one ways, almost like an anti-Burnley where you've got Graham Potter... Got flattered. He's been flattered as a coach and as a philosopher. They have real flaws. They can't get the ball in the net. Where will that leave them? Do you think you know a very very popular team that might go down? Well, potentially. I, I think that that game against Fulham is an example of where all the aesthetics go out the window. That's just a that's a game you just have to win. I think. What I will say in Graham Potter's defence is that. The improvement of individual players has been very significant. Think of the kind of the strides made by Yves Basuma. Trossard has been excellent. Solly Marsh has had a real renaissance at Brighton this year, which is lovely to see because he seemed to kind of dip off his potential for a few years. I just wonder whether <clears throat> there have been times where Brighton have been caught between what they used to be and what they used to do well under Chris Hutton and what they strive to be in the future, which is a little bit more aggressive and attacking. And I think that there was a, a midpoint between those two to reach at, at different points. The goals are the goals are a problem. I mean, I you know over the years they they've had a they've had a good go at trying to find forwards who can do this. They uh, I forget the name of the the Lacardia they bought from uh, PSV a few years ago. He was an expensive player. Danny Welbeck has come in, of course. Malpai, I still don't quite know what I make of him as a player. Like, I can't quite decide. There's times when you watch him, you think you're a Premier League player. And there's times when you watch him, you think you have to, you have, your chance conversion has to be better. So I don't know what the answer with, with it is. But I, I have no real concerns about Brighton. I think also that we have to, as with every other team in that, in that, in the division, you have to apply a little bit of a caveat because their plans for what they want to be in terms of, you know, their evolution under Graham Potter have been stymied by the retraction of spending, the coronavirus. So let's see. I mean, I, I, I'm I, with the group of people who think it's going to click eventually and things will, and they will start to get the points their performances deserve. We'll potentially be proved wrong with that. But I, I do, at the end of every game I watch, I am left with the same feeling as that, okay, there, there's been the odd break here. There's been a, a chance which probably should have gone in there. And at some point, you know, probably in the second half of the season, those chances are going to start dropping. I don't know whether that will be the case, but I, I'm still left with that general kind of residual positivity. Mm. What about uh, Fulham? There's been an upsurge in positivity as far as they're concerned in recent weeks. Jordan, what do you make of them at the moment? They're looking good. They're looking good. They're not winning many games, but they're not losing any many games even. I think in where they are, it's about just getting points on the board, albeit one at one at a time. My concern for Fulham is a little bit like Newcastle. There's, it's very much a championship team. But my main concern is that they're up front, they look very championship. A lot of their frontline attackers, for me, they're just not good enough. And I think they're going to only... They're, they're gonna, they'll stay in the Premier League if they can keep clean sheets and nick a goal somehow the other end, because they're not going to score many, there won't be many games where they score two or more goals, just because I like Lookman, I've been a big fan of Lookman and Guisa. A lot of the other attackers, I just don't think, I've never been a big fan of um, Mitrovic. He's in that kind of, 
Cameron Jerome bracket of, you know, too good for the championship, but not good enough for the Premier League. And, and, and that's where my big concern is. Ruben Loftus-Cheek is a player that I think could be the guy that keeps him in the Premier League. I think he's got huge potential. But whenever I watch Ruben Loftus-Cheek, I'm always left wondering why you don't give more. He always plays within, within himself. He, he's never really, there's more to come from him. And I just, I've never seen it, but I know it's there. So I think if he can really get the, the, the eight or so goals between now and the end of the season that I think he's capable of getting, that could be the difference between them staying up and going down. But they've given themselves a chance. If they win this game, I think Brighton are in big, big trouble. Because I think the gap them is only two points. They'll be in big trouble then. So I think for Brighton, it's a must, must not lose at the bare minimum. But if Fulham can win this, I, I fear then more for Brighton than I do for Fulham. Yeah, because the two games they've got after that are, are Spurs at home. Spurs. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. that that that. Um, I, I I was just going to drop in there. I quite like Angisa Jordan. I mean, from the player that first arrived at Fulham, who then got loaned out to Villarreal, I think he's I think he's evolved pretty dramatically. I, I completely. I, I would actually, I I will, I will go with you with that kind of attack on Mitrovic. I don't think Mitrovic is fit. Like I, I, I don't think he's he's looked. I, I do agree that sort of at his best he probably belongs in the kind of the the lower regions of the Premier League. But he hasn't been. He hasn't even been the player he was last time. He just looks fundamentally unfit. And whilst like I think Lookman's been good, I think Loftus Cheek has been good. I've been quite impressed by Bobby Reed. I didn't ever think he. I, I thought he. I he's he's from the West Country down here, and I, I saw a little bit of him at Bristol City, and I thought he was a Championship player. He's he's played pretty well. I think if you put in a different pivot, you put in a like a, a proper focal point who's fit and who is, who is who represents the things Mitrovic does at his best as fittest. I think they would be in a very healthy position, but it's almost like he's the obstruction to you know because it, this tendency is still right. He should play because it's Mitrovic. But then in reality, is he really or is he an imitation of what he used to be? It's, it's an interesting little conundrum. And, and I was said all of that just briefly as well. I think that the fact that the team, I think, in the main is a championship squad, that yeah, then yeah. I think you have to give a lot of credit then to Scott Parker, who at the start mm, of the season yes. I had massive reservations about. I, I, I was really not sure about him, but I really like watching managers who, who learn and improve. And he's learned lessons from the first half of the season and he's definitely improving. So whilst I wasn't convinced about Scott Park, and I wouldn't say I'm now convinced about him, I think the reason they've got a chance staying in the league is mainly down to him. Yeah. Well, if we look at you know, managerial uncertainties, it's pretty significant, isn't it, that there's no noise whatsoever about Chris Wilder's job security at Sheffield United. You know, their aim probably is just to beat Derby's record of 11 points. As we stand, they're at Old Trafford in midweek. Seb, are they now almost in free hit territory? Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. And it breaks my heart a little bit because I was a huge fan of what Chris Wilder did last season and, you know, up until that season to get Sheffield United in that position. But it reminds me a little bit of the Mauricio Pochettino scenario at Spurs. Different clubs and, and players and managers, of course, and coaching styles and situations. But that's the truism in professional sport is there comes a time where um, the relationship between... Um, coach and squad drops a few notches and it loses some of the tension it needs needs to be successful and that's particularly true when a team is punching above its weight which of course Sheffield United are and so yeah now the situation they find themselves in is is kind of to to prepare for life back in the in the football league to return there in as healthy a position as possible and yeah well, the worst thing they could possibly do would be to to sort of 
to throw the kitchen sink at the transfer market, to go QPR about it and uh, to, to try and sort of, I don't know, to, 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 to make decisions out of desperation. But it's, it's desperately sad, but I, I, don't think, um, I don't think it should be a situation where anyone, anyone loses the perspective, any of their perspective for what Wilder's achieved or what those players have achieved. It's just, it has run out of steam and under very strange circumstances as well, of course. Okay, Manchester United, by contrast, obviously buoyed by that uh, win over Liverpool in the Cup on Sunday. The identity of the match winner there was no surprise, was it, uh, Jordan? No, no, he's um, he's coming in like Superman at the moment, saving the day all, all, all the time. Bruno Fernandes, the, the stats speak for themselves. And yeah, he, he single-handedly... Actually, that's not fair, actually. He's, um, he's playing a massive role in dragging United into securing a top four spot and 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 maybe even winning winning the league this year. I still have some concerns about Solskjaer, but I'm going to be nice about him for once. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to say something good about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for once. <laughs> I think that he deserves credit for where they are. I think he's the only reason now and his tactics that can prevent United from lifting, lifting silverware this season. I, I've got some friends and colleagues that work on the Manchester Beat quite closely and they have said that and I agree with them that tactically Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I don't think is anything particularly special but what he is special at is having relationships with players his man management of of, of individual players seems to be really really proving a success I think Pogba is the best example of this how he's managed Paul Pogba the last couple of years spoken about him never once thrown him under the bus even when some sections of, of our media and fan base have I think it's proven dividends now he's appointed Darren Fletcher to the, the the coaching staff and by from what I'm hearing he's a huge football nerd massive tactical geek and that is what I think Solskjaer is doing he's, he's recognizing that he isn't a Klopp or a, or a Guardiola but if he can put people around him who maybe do have the tactical brain to break down games in game and pre-game then he may do okay and if he can just keep the players happy I think we've seen with Zidane to some large degree at Real Madrid is going sour now but his biggest asset I think Zidane was if you keep talented players happy you give yourself half a chance I think what United are doing now they've got players who are happy and are performing to their potential and I can see United this year unfortunately for me I'm an Arsenal fan winning something this season but I will give Solskjaer credit for the first time this season where does all this leave Liverpool Seb? Ooh, that's a really good question Mike I don't know and I'm I'm also really hesitant to be too bold with any predictions because you know you could very easily see them beat Spurs on Thursday and and then you know run through the fixed list. I mean they've got Man City on the horizon, but that's a De Bruyne-less Manchester City. And the, the 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 difficulty here is that there are fragments of their performances recently that you think okay that that looks healthy. You know they they aren't creating the chances that they were, and they aren't you know they certainly aren't converting them, but. You know, there are things to admire. There are just a few flaws. I, The centre-back situation is very difficult. It's a little dispiriting to see the pylon directed towards Reese Williams because I, I don't think that's very fair. He's been promoted too early. There is still a lot of potential in a player like that. It's just that he's not ready to be doing what he's being asked to do. And the drop-offs around the side are, you know, are concerning. But I, I, I don't know. I just think it's a, it's kind of as we said with with Brighton, with, with Sheffield United, these are human beings. And, you know, if you look at sort of the amount of football these players have been asked to play over the last few years and to the level and uh, expectation that they've they've been asked to perform to, 
there was going to be a point at at which no matter who the manager was, no matter what their you know the you know mentality monster thing, all these things, like over time they fade away, and eventually players hit the wall, and it just looks like they've lost the kind of the you know the five to ten percent you need to be really ruthless in the Premier League because. Yeah, they lost to Manchester United on Sunday in a great game and, you know, there were problems with their performance. But equally, they could have won that game. And that's been vaguely true across the games that they've lost or the or the points that they've dropped. So <clears throat> I'm not ready to write any obituaries just yet. I'm still back in Liverpool to, to win the title, but I'm an idiot. But I will say, I will say, I will say this, I will say this. If Tottenham beat Liverpool this week, Liverpool are in big trouble. I think I, 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 for the first time, if I will have to have serious doubts about Liverpool, their title charge, and even top four, it's so tight. This sounds crazy, but if Spurs, I think they'll be licking their lips this week. And if they can get three points against Liverpool, I think they'll be thinking we can drag Liverpool into a who can finish top four race and maybe drag ourselves into a, I don't think Spurs are title contenders, but they'll be looking at a top three sort of uh, finish for themselves. So it's a massive game for Liverpool. Yeah, let the circus begin. Seb, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you, you'd imagine that somewhere deep within his cave slash lair, Jose Mourinho is absolutely relishing this as an opportunity, like a fragile Liverpool, you know, to attack. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, um, I maybe this is just sort of, I, I, I'm being informed by what I've seen from Liverpool over the past couple of years because they have been absolutely outstanding. That it, It's going to take some while to get used to the idea that they won't come to, to White Hart Lane and, and, and roll Tottenham over. I still have concerns about that Tottenham defence going against that Liverpool forward line. You play Salah, Firmino. Firmino had quite a good game at Old Trafford and, in, in, you know, had a few good moments. Mane is Mane, is world-class footballer, of course. And no matter the improvement at Spurs, and it is significant, and Jose Mourinho has, you know, in various departments done a pretty good job, there is still a vulnerability there and, and nobody should be pretending otherwise. And you could imagine some of those Liverpool strengths aligning quite nicely regardless of their form. Just to challenge that a little bit though, but Seb, I would say look at Spurs' front line against that Liverpool back line. I would fancy yeah, that more so than, do you know what I mean? Liverpool's front line against Spurs'. But I, I hear what you're saying, Tony. Also, Jordan, I'm, I'm a Spurs fan. I'm not oh, really okay. positive about it. <laughs> <laughs> You got, I got, I got 36 years like working against me. I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. Don't disrupt my negativity again. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, if if we're all going to be down, you've also got to look at Liverpool being without Fabinho because of suspension on Thursday as well. Jordan, at what point now do we have to start looking seriously at Jurgen Klopp in terms of? the way he's doing his job at the moment, his, his irritation with the board about a lack of signings becoming more clear, isn't it? How can he generate the feel-good factor or regenerate that factor that has basically been associated with him since the first day he walked into Anfield? I, I don't think there's an, a, a massive issue regarding Jurgen Klopp. I, I mean, I do find it a bit weird that they... You know, they, they didn't sign a, a, another centre-back in the summer. And I think there's a story to come out about what's happened there. I, I, I think there's, there's a, it's, it's weird. You let Lovren go and don't replace him. I, I, I'm not overly, overly analysing Jurgen Klopp at the moment. I, I think that, yes, he has been whinging and whining and moaning all season about everything and anything. 
But I think that's what that's what champions do. I think when you win a Premier League, the year after Fergie won, won a Prem, the next year he'd be whining and moaning because you want to retain it. I've seen Pep do it. I've seen Jose do it. I've even seen my manager, former boss uh, Wenger do it. I, I think it's what people do. But I also think looking more widely at Liverpool under Klopp, I just think it's a case of three years of operating at an insanely high level. Fatigue is kicking in. They've been unlucky with the Van Dyke injury. You know, the front three are off form at the same time. They've had to rejig the team, put midfielders in defence and all that sort of stuff as well. And I think that culminating in a lot of the frustrations that are happening off the field at Liverpool are making Klopp a very, very irritable bear. But I think it's just winner syndrome. When you win, you want to win again. I think he's sensing that this year isn't going his way and he's clutching at any possible thing to to alleviate and to, to you know to, to take away from from that frustration but um he's got a couple of years left I think that he'll keep fighting to the bitter end but I think there are some questions that he'll be asking the board in the summer whether they retain the league or not yeah he's certainly he's still holding our hope that uh, David Alaba might turn up but it looks like he's on the way to, to Real Madrid instead of Liverpool, who I think have made the biggest bid for him. Manchester City, can we look at those them in a broader context, in, in, in the Premier League context anyway, Seb? You know, they're on a great run. We can probably talk about you know the, the, you know, the proximity to a shock at Cheltenham of all places, uh, with great respect to them. You know, that's just a nice piece of theatre, isn't it? They're playing West Brom midweek. Do you think West Brom can neutralise City under Sam Allardyce in the way that they did under Slaven Bilic? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think with um, with Allardyce's sides, I, I think when he comes in, I mean, he, he has an effect, but there's always a little bit of a dip first. And I, I don't think West Brom are quite through that process at the moment. They are, they're getting better. Some of their fundamentals are improved. I, I acknowledge that. They were very unlucky at West Ham a couple of weeks ago. But they're not quite ready to for that kind of contest. Also, Mike, I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah, we had this conversation a couple of months ago. I think we'd be talking about you know uh, the looming threat of Allardyce's set pieces and big centre halves coming up into the box. Actually, uh, I've been so so impressed with Ruben Diaz at Man City. John Stones's renaissance has been great. It's good to see from a, from an English perspective, of course. I think City defensively have become a lot better. Cheltenham issues aside. And you do suddenly feel a whole lot more positive about them having to go to a ground and facing an opposition like that. The caveat is that, um, of course, we've mentioned it already, but Kevin De Bruyne's injury is just like, there's no compensation for that really because he's such a good player that there isn't somebody that that can come in and do the things that he does. But I, I expect City to get through it quite easily. I think the De Bruyne injury costs them later down the road, but probably not here. Yeah, that'll be the ninth team to lead the Premier League if they win at the Hawthorns. Does that say everything about this season, Jordan? It does. It does. It's been a crazy season where everything and anything has has, has happened. I think um, I, I agree with Seb about the, the loss of the Bruyne. I think down the line it will hurt them, especially in their Champions League running as well. I think they're going to need him to be on top form. He was just playing himself into top form, but yeah, I... I Again, to what Seb said earlier on, it's maybe a bit foolish to try and predict who will win the Premier League because it's changing week to week, seemingly. But it's been a it's been a bonkers year, and I think there's still some crazy, crazy positions to be filled still yet to come. Okay, and one interesting observation by Pep Guardiola 
before the weekend, he was talking about the Premier League needing fewer clubs. Uh, do you agree with that, Seb? No, no, because this is always an argument made with you know quality in mind or the protection of players in mind or um, with burnout in mind, at, you know, and it's always made whilst at the same time plans are underway for a new 18-game-a-season Super League. So I think before we start ripping up the traditional format of English football, you know, let's let's take a look at kind of the expansion of the industrial complex elsewhere. You know, does football need to have an expanded club World Cup? Does it need to have an even bigger World Cup nationwide? Does it need to have a third European competition every season? Like these are the questions that need asking. You know, should we be entertaining the idea of a two-group, ten-team? Yeah, eighteen game a season midweek competition. No, I don't think so. Let's address those issues first, and then let's worry about the format of, you know, the football league and the Premier League as we know it. I actually disagree there. I think that they they, they should be. Um, well, I disagree with the first part. Um, the, the latter part, I agree with. So, I, I think there should be a shorter, smaller Premier League. I think that there's too many games at the moment. I think it's affecting the quality. Isn't of, that of, the nature of this season, though, Jordan? It's it's a completely unique season, isn't it? Well, I, I thought this before, before pre-COVID. I, I thought for a couple of years now that the idea of going to 18 teams isn't the worst idea. But I do where I agree with Seb is if it's going to significantly impact the structure of wider football, which in some degree, some some degree it will, then no. If it's if it's the the conduit to a super league or some kind of breakaway, then I wouldn't be for it. But the premise of having a couple of less teams and a fewer less games, I think, would improve the quality of the of the football. I wonder guys, I wonder whether the pertinent issue here is like if you did, if you drop the Premier League down to 18 teams, what is that space what is the space vacated by the you know the reduction of fixtures then going to be useful? Is that rest? Is that just a is that a period of coaching? Is that a period where no teams chance. can have absolutely some time off? no exactly chance. exactly and that that's my problem with it is that and I I'm, this is not about Pep Guardiola. I would react in the same way if it came from any coach of a nominal top six club. Is that if you're clearing the decks to do something else with your players, then it's a completely redundant argument. And also right so. What happens to the teams that are demoted? And then what happens further down the Football League pyramid? Who's being shunted out of the Football League to accommodate this change in in, in, in fixtures? Like, those questions never come into it. It's like when, when, when these ideas come from the top down, which invariably they always do, there's this kind of like there's kind of a like a, a mental vacancy to the repercussions. It's bizarre. It's like a, okay, well, this suits us and so once we've dealt with the things which benefit us, then we'll just stop thinking about this as an idea. And then we'll just stop considering what the butterfly effect is. And, and it's just, it annoys me that it's it's kind of, one of these initiatives never seems to be wholly good for the game. It's, there's never enough benevolence that comes with it. Sorry, that was a bit ranty from Monday morning, wasn't That's it? That's not too uh, bad. Okay. We like rants. Don't worry about it. Blood is pumping at least ahead of the new week. <laughs> well, let's let's bring it together, shall we? You know, let's look at the European Super League or the proposed Super League and do a, do a yes or no on it. Any appeal, Jordan, to this idea beyond container loads of cash for a favoured few clubs? In a word, no, I'm not for it. 
And uh, if you want to use a few more words to describe oh, sorry. Warren. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I did that too literal, didn't I? Um, uh, no, I, I just, I, I think that we are in a, in, a, in, a, in a mire of too much money as it is. I think we all know the kind of dark secrets and dark fingers, if you like, that kind of pass money into areas of the game that it shouldn't be going to. So no, I, I no, in a word. <laughs> what about you, Seb? No, Mike, because it's it's the precursor to something else. This is how this begins. It begins with a midweek competition, which isn't a threat to the uh, league system. And then in a couple of decades down the line, it evolves further. No, and it is also, listen, you're proposing also a midweek competition, which spans potentially 18 games or more, half of which will be away from home. Now, has anybody thought about the cost that that is going to uh, to uh, bestow on, on supporters? Like, Who's, who's catching all of those planes and those trains and those hotels and who's taking all of that time across work, time off work? Like I understand that away games in midweek happen already, but you're you're talking about increasing the burden on the fan. Nobody seemingly even considered that. It's quite extraordinary. Well, that's no, no. <laughs> well not extraordinary actually at all. It's but it's um it's not. But that's the nature of modern football. You know, the, it is, the, yes. the, the fan supposedly doesn't matter anymore. Which is awful. Well, I tell you what it is, Mike. It's it's kind of the fan doesn't matter, and you know what? We'll find new fans. We'll find new fans somewhere else. Well, there'll be somebody else to uh, to take a place, or we'll find somebody from over there who can, uh, you know, who we can sell a ticket to. It's awful. Yeah. Well, yeah. From my point of view, I would say let the big six, and that's their description, by the way, pick up their three hundred and ten million pound joining fee. Their supposed two hundred million pounds a season. They don't own football. They're fleas who think the dog belongs to them. They're welcome to their sterile, short-sighted greed league. FIFA and UEFA are probably wasting their breath, threatening sanctions. But hey, they lost the moral authority to govern long ago. The Super League won't kill domestic football as some fear. I think it will reaffirm it because local football for local people will mean something more than money. Do you agree? please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Seb and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.